chef Shota Nakajima began his culinary journey at the age of 16, working for a well-acclaimed sushi restaurant in his hometown of Seattle, Washington. At the age of 18, Nakajima moved to Osaka, Japan to learn about the art of Japanese cuisine. In Japan, Nakajima had the opportunity to work for Michelin star-rated chef Yasuhiko Sakamoto. As one would expect, this experience changed Chef Shota's perspective on cooking. And since returning to Seattle, it has been Nakajima's dream to convey Chef Sakamoto's approach to hospitality and Japanese cuisine in the United States. He joins us in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we talk about the art of creativity within the culinary space and what it feels like to be a young chef in America today. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. This is our 2017 Let the Music Plate conversations that we are having with some of America's and some of the world's brightest uh, and most creative minds within the culinary space. Joining us today, uh, an incredible guest, Chef Shota Nakajima. He's joining us from Seattle. I think you guys are going to absolutely love what he's doing there and his story. So with that being said, Chef, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting. This is going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely, man. So um, where do we begin? I mean, I feel like there's so many directions we can take this. I, say say I'm a stranger and we've never met before. Where do you begin with, with who, you're, who you are and your work in the world? Um, I'm, a, I'm a multicultural person. I was born in Japan, uh, raised in the U.S. in elementary school, moved back to Japan in junior high, came back for high school. And then when I was 18, I moved to Japan again until I was 23, so for about five years. Um, and then after that, came back again. So kind of back and forth, back and forth, which kind of made me realize what I really enjoyed, which was Japanese culture, Japanese food. And I guess what I try to do is really try to convey Japanese food in my own way to the U.S., to the States. Beautiful. So, like, when when did this love affair with food begin? Was this before you went back after high school or like when did you know there was something for you in the food space um actually like starting out as a chef was kind of an interesting my, my family itself um all we do is talk about food that's kind of like <laughs> the conversation still to this day what we what we always talk about and uh i was pretty lucky um actually really lucky that i have a mom that cooks every day so I think from there, like, I've always just loved food. I've always loved eating, um, trying different things. And my mom always made something different all the time, um, besides curry, because that's her favorite thing. So she made curry once a week after I, I got kind of sick of it after a while. But <laughs> besides that, I loved everything. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I actually uh, started working in restaurants when I was 16, because that, uh, that was the first job I could get at the time. And I kind of just fell in love with the lifestyle, serving people, um, everything about it. And uh, there was this one day where actually my mom came in to eat and, you know, I got to cook her some food and serve it to her. And that was like the moment I was like, okay, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And it's been uh, almost 11 years now. Wow. Wow. So, um, okay. Well, then, then, then rewind me back a little bit to like when you really started getting into um, almost the essence, the soul, the beauty of like the culinary space while you were in Japan. 
and and I'm taking this on some stuff that I've studied about you, but didn't you work um, for like a really, really famous Michelin chef in Japan? Yeah, I worked for a Michelin star chef in Japan. Um, he had one of the first stars in Osaka as well. Hmm. Um, it was it was a brutal, brutal experience, honestly. Hmm. Um, I mean, the hours were from uh, a little bit before 9 a.m. to 4 a.m. every day. We have a 15-minute break. Um, we would have a day off once every other month. We lived upstairs from the restaurant um, in a small room. So we kind of just we worked and lived, and that's kind of what we did. Um, and that was, that was kind of brutal, but at the same time, you know, there's, I think that brutal thing, that brutal experience teaches you a lot about, a lot about the culinary industry, a lot about what you want, what you are actually hungry for and makes you realize, um, what you want to keep doing. Hmm. So what, what did you realize you wanted and, and what were you hungry for through that experience? When I first joined, I think I was hungry to make like the crazy best food, you know, like the whole, whole nine, like being the greatest chef in the world, whatever. I mean, but I think after a little while, I think it, what I realized, um, I think which was the most important thing that I realized was that at the end of the day, like cooking is very simple. It's cooking food that you want to eat that you would want to serve to people that you love you care about and if you can do that every single time as a chef to every single guest um that's that's what makes a great chef Hmm. so um take take that brutality of that experience shift that into um what you're doing today is it similar is it a different difficult um are you have you found a little bit more of sustainability in it or I'd love to hear your insights on what you learned there you know like well I loved this but I didn't like that and now that I'm doing my own thing I can kind of merge the two yeah um I think are you talking about the training wise or the food wise um well gosh I mean either I mean I'd love to just hear as, as, as you as like I guess at, from the aspect of the chef um yeah I think um, training-wise, um, I think over here in the States, you know, working 40 hours is more kind of a common sense thing. So when you work over that, it becomes a little hard um, and you become irregular from society. Hmm. But over there in Japan, it's more of a regular thing for someone who decides to train in a nice restaurant. You know, you work 100 hours, 120 hours a week um, and you get paid less than a grand a month. But the thing is, like, it's such a normal thing over there. It this is the process. It's not weird. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the process, and I think there's a beauty in that too. As brutal and hard as it is, especially you know, like I, I don't think I could do it right now, being twenty twenty seven. I think it's a little hard. Um, if I wanted to start now, but I started when I was eighteen, so um, I don't know. I think it teaches you this one more depth of dimension in the cooking world when you work like that. Yeah. You know, I have a very amateur study into Japanese cuisine and culture, um, but, like, the Japanese language is just absolutely beautiful. Um, and they have, like, uh, and I'm going to pronounce these words wrong, but, like, omakase, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, is it kaiseki? How do you say that? Uh, kaiseki. Kaiseki. Um, yeah. And, and, like, we don't have that in America. 
We we we, yeah. we don't have these like big big words that um, mean these beautiful things that really are totally surrounding the dinner table and totally surrounding food experience. How have, yeah. how have you merged kind of the the American you know super fast get in get out with the Japanese reverence of the meal and pausing between dishes and, and things like that? Um, I think I kind of just, tri- well, we, we serve tables in kind of a unique way where every guest kind of has their own pace and it's always communicated. We watch, you know, some people will have a longer conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, especially if it's like a first anniversary date, it's, it's different for everybody. And I think it's, I think, you know, like service, what's great service? I think 90% of great service is common sense of how to care for people, how to be intuitive, um, how to understand what people need. Hmm. So I think it kind of flows with that whole thing. You know, it's an anniversary. Okay, we're going to drop him some bubbles on the house. And then let him chat, you know, let him hold hands, um, let him do their thing before we, you know, go take an order or we start dropping the mousses. But compared to, you know, some people, like, if my dad comes in the restaurant, he's going to want to eat. And I know that for course one, he's going to want a bowl of rice, like, no matter what. And, you know, I think it's it's one of those things. And you start to get your regulars. You start to get the people that come in all the time. And you know what they want. You know their needs. So you don't really have to, like, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. So the... I mean, I think you you engaging at that human level. I haven't I haven't heard this yet. I haven't heard this aspect yet from, from sh- some of these chef interviews. Um, yeah, and I love that you're like, yeah, it's the art of being human. It's it's paying attention. Um, yeah, knowing knowing who's there and why they are there, and trying to read the thing underneath the thing to know their goals of why did they come to your restaurant. Yeah. Um, wow. So when. T- Tell me about Adana. How long have you been um, at the helm at this restaurant? When when did it begin and so forth? Um, actually, I opened as a restaurant called Naka. Okay. Um, originally, which was uh, like a 10-course, 15-course um, specials. We'd do like 20-course meals. But like super old-school Japanese fine dining, kaiseki meals. Um, and after a year and a half, um, I actually switched it to a concept called Adana which was a little bit more simple. It was a three-course meal. So now we do a three-course meal with three options per. Um, So we have nine menu items on the menu. And every month you swap, we swap the whole nine menus out. But every single time you dine, you choose one from each course and you kind of carry your own three courses. Uh, And it's always a flat $37. And that's kind of a tech reason. 37 has always been my lucky number since I was 14. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So when uh, tell me why why the shift was it uh, wrong place wrong time for the first way you were doing the restaurant um, or you just said hey this isn't working we need to do something different um, that's a fast shift to go hey you know yeah a few months in you know we're we're gonna change this up I think I mean my biggest thing is like we were booked out on the weekends but the weekdays are a little slow and I think the harshest thing for me is the environment of the restaurant and the culture, what that means to me is regulars, you know, regulars coming in and saying, hi, Oh, I know what you want. Hey, you want a bubble of this, or you want to, you want to drink this? Hey, we got something special in house. We went to the farmer's market today and that whole interaction. 
And I think in Seattle, um, the price point was a little bit too high, which made that um, that environment kind of impossible. Hmm. And, you know, like that's at the end of the day, that was like my biggest goal in a restaurant, like whatever cuisine I do, like having the regulars, having to get to know them, you know, going to touch their table, talk to them. Sometimes like if it's not super busy, you just pull up a chair and sit down and talk to them for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So you're really, yeah, you, you love the community aspect of this. Yeah. 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 And was that, I mean, that's, I guess that's like kind of how I look at food, you know, sometimes it's, why do any, why does anyone go to a restaurant when anyone can go to a supermarket and get some food or like Whole Foods or whatever and eat for $10 a day? Why would anyone decide to go to a restaurant? And I think it's at that point where, you know, Uber Eats and all the delivery systems are getting bigger and bigger. The Internet's getting bigger. And human interactions are such a common thing that's starting to get lost. And I think that's kind of a key to, in my mind, I think that's the key from the to differentiate the definition of a good restaurant to a great restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and that's a beautiful place to be in as a, sh- a chef to know that that responsibility, this is one of the few places that we have left where yeah. people actually look at each other and communicate. Yeah. We hope. <laughs> yeah, we hope. <laughs> so, sometimes they're still looking down. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody has their different way of enjoying life or what they want to do. So yeah. I don't force anything on anybody. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as much as possible with the people that, do like that interaction to like that kind of thing. Like, you know, we try to, we try to really cherish that because that's something that I really enjoy. So was that, did, did you feel like you were letting go of something when you changed the style of how you were serving or, or did, was it an easy, like, Hey, we got a shift. This has to change. Um, I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, the big thing about doing Kaiseki was it's, it's kind of been in my family for a long time. So tell us what uh, that cu- is, because I think a lot of our listeners don't know what Kaiseki oh, yeah, is. So Kaiseki is like one of the oldest, oldest cuisines in Japan. It was originally created in the 1500s. Kai means around the chest. Uh, seki means rock. And why that kind of became a cuisine is it's from monks where they were only allowed to eat one meal a day. And that was before noon. So at night mm-hmm. they would get cold like their bodies would get cold. So they would build a fire, uh, warm a rock next to it and put that rocks rock close to their chest. And that was Kaiseki, which is simply said something that satisfies the body, which turned into an elaborate 10 course, 15 course. And there's multiple rules to it Mm -hmm. where, you know, things you can do, things you can't do because it's a very traditional, traditional old school meal. Um, and it's almost like this symphony, isn't it? I mean, it's like this big, yeah. big, um, very intentional. The, the, sh- the, the, the space between the chef and the guest, or the, or the chef and who's having the meal, is this very beautiful thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the pacing, the coursing, different. And I mean, when I was doing that, it was a, it was a lot of work. I mean, we were changing the menu like almost every day. Hmm. Um, a lot of times in the middle of service, our service staff struggled all the time with that. I'd be like, chef, what is this? Oh, this is this, by the way, I bought this today. So I ended up making this <laughs> for that guest. <laughs> wow. So back to letting go of that. It was, it was that traditional thing that you'd known had been in your family for a long time. Yeah. 
and then the ship. Yeah, Kaiseki's kind of been in my family for over 400 years now. So it was one of my big goals when I originally opened, you know, to what do I want to do as a chef, what I want to do, what I want to achieve, and kind of kept thinking about that. And I guess my biggest thing is, like, you know, I want to really, really convey Japanese culture um, through food because, you know, it's something that I know really well, and I think that's there's a lot of beautiful parts to it. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, especially when I came back from Japan, you know, I, I'm working in a sushi restaurant and, um, I go, go around, you know, talk to friends and like, oh yeah, I do uh, Japanese food. And they're like, oh, sushi, California rolls. And in my mind, there was something that was always a little frustrating when I heard mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like sushi, sushi is like 10%, not even 10% of the food culture in Japanese cuisine. And there's, and I'm not saying sushi is bad. I love sushi. Don't get me wrong on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's a lot of beautiful aspects of Japanese cuisine that haven't been introduced is kind of how I, I took it and kind of ran with it. You know, and it, it feels like the, the palate, the food consciousness of America is kind of waking up a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you, do you foresee? I definitely maybe, see that. Do you foresee yeah. that like this? the Kaseki could maybe come, come back. You may have another chance to do that as kind of <laughs> the whole country's palate is really waking up to all types of beauty and um, culture and things like that. I mean, I definitely hope so. I mean, that's, I think so. I think it's a lot of people are looking in the right direction. Um, and for whatever reason, I didn't end up changing the concept, but I think I did get to introduce Kaiseki raise awareness for it uh, to a lot of people which is always the first step, you know, somebody has to take the first step, somebody has to do something about it, or that word wouldn't mean anything to a lot of people. Right. So tell me again, it means around the chest and rock, is that right? Yeah, around the chest and rock. So it's, I mean, it's a super simple concept at the end of the day. It's, um, you know, it's a meal that satisfies the body. Hmm. We just don't have words like that in English. I mean, the Japanese language is just so beautiful. They're like, yeah, you know, when like your whole essence is satisfied in something, we have a word for that, you know? Yeah. I love it. Um, So, well, let's shift gears. Let's talk Iron Chef Gauntlet. Um, Oh, yeah. So tell me about that experience on the Food Network. Iron Chef Gauntlet, that was was quite an experience, I'm not going to lie. I kind of... uh, well, originally they wanted me to be on a different show. Uh, I couldn't do it at the time. And um, the producers ended up calling me to get on the show for Iron Chef. And, you know, it's one of those shows that I watched. I actually watched the Japanese version with my mom and dad when I was growing up, mm-hmm. when I was uh, in elementary school. And I was like, yeah, that sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> so uh <laughs> ended up signing in for it. Um, and, yeah, just competed cooked i don't know where to start with that one did you start did did uh what your restaurant was already open at this time right yes yes did, it was open did that did you more people kind of put did that put you on the map did that bring some more awareness to what you were doing yeah it definitely did um it helped out uh our business as a whole um just bringing people in introducing you know japanese food to people um I think a lot of people tried the food 
from watching the show or they would have never came into the restaurant because they wouldn't understand what, okay, what's Japanese food without sushi? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's something that I was really looking forward to on going on the show for, of you know, doing Japanese food and only Japanese food and really showcasing that, Hey, there's a lot of things that you can actually do as a Japanese chef. Um, that's not sushi. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So then let me ask you this. You've, uh, how long has Adana been open now? Adana has been open since February. So it's been so it's fresh. Yeah. It's still fresh, yeah. fresh. And it's, it's been, when, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it's been a whirlwind this year. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, it's always good to be busy though. Yeah. I mean, totally. probably, I'm like the personality. I'm a workaholic. So I don't know what I would do if I didn't have anything to do. Like I always need to come up with projects or like events or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, so break that down for me when, when you get out of bed each day um, and how do you keep that passion engaged? Where do you, where do you go to either be inspired, to find ways to express yourself, to go find new ingredients? Where does, where do you kind of channel that passion each day? I, I have a big thing about morning routines. Um, and sometimes you need to switch it up. Like I run in the morning for three miles or go swim for 500 meters or something like the first thing I do when I wake up is always kind of a factor for me. Um, and sometimes like if I get bored of running, I'll start swimming. If I get bored of swimming, I'll go to the mountains and start foraging for mushrooms. But that first activity I do to freshen up my brain really kind of puts me in game mode. And from there, like my, if I if I skip out on that, like my day is usually pretty, yeah, yeah, not not as productive, not as energized, not as I don't know, just not as passionate about everything. So walk me down the road of foraging in the mountains. Um, like, what's that look like? What do you come back with? Um, uh, chanterelles. Um, well, fall time would be chanterelles, uh, winter chanterelles. Um, those are the two big ones that I usually go for. Wow. And there's bullets. There's a bunch of other mushrooms. Um, sometimes like mushrooms that'll give me a stomach ache, but I haven't died yet, so it's pretty, pretty fine. <laughs> <Just gotta> taste, <laughs> a little taste test here and there. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I know like three of the mushrooms that you can never touch, and that's all you kind of need to know. Right. And right. the rest of the mushrooms, you know, it's like if it's a new one, you want to try one at a time. Then you might get a stomach ache. If you get a stomach ache, it's like, oh, shouldn't eat that one again. Yeah. Do you have, uh, do you know other local foragers that just every day that's what they go do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually buy all of our mushrooms from local foragers, and that's all they do. Wow, wow. Now, we don't, we don't really use, you know, big produce companies for cultivated mushrooms. We usually get them from, you know, the people who actually go to the woods, and you know, they're they're people that I've met at bars or they're major vendors that do that for specific restaurants. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So you're definitely the youngest chef we've spoken to for this series. Yeah. Um, say, I get that a lot. Say, say there's a, <laughs> say there's a 22 year old guy, an 18 year old girl. Um, they're thinking about doing this. What, yeah. what, what in your head is like, Hey, before you think anything else, this needs to be step one. Um, is it, do you need to find someone to study under? Do you, do, should you go to the schools? Like, I'm sure there's so many 
opinions on this space? What's the number one thing you wish you would have known? You know, I think, I think if you're an 18, 20, go somewhere that's going to be insanely crazy, you know, somewhere that you can learn a lot, no matter what, don't like go to a pub that's like near yeah. your house. Yeah. Go to like Chicago, go to Linea or like, you know, yeah. one of those like crazy restaurants and just learn as much as you can and be hungry and be relentless. And your first few years, your first, you know, especially I think like your first five years in the industry is really going to determine what kind of chef you're going to be. Hmm. I was extremely lucky with the place that I worked at. My chef was like the most humble, I mean, crazy angry person sometimes too, but like humble, a father figure, you know, like I, I still talk to him all the time. Um, I talked to him once a month on the phone call and it's been years since I've like, you know, worked for him, but he's someone that I still go back to and a chef like that, someone who can do that for you compared to someone who's going to just tell you what to do and sign a paycheck for you. Yeah. Is he still practicing today? Yeah. Um, he's actually retiring. Ooh, I don't know if I can say this, but yeah, it's America's size fine. He's actually retiring 2019. Um, how many years has he been doing it? 35 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So his, it's insane. Like his son, he has three sons and they're all chefs as well. So he's going to help start helping out his sons. Um, both his, well, his oldest son actually does Chinese cuisine. His second and third son do Japanese cuisine and they went to go train at other restaurants for 10 years or so. And they came back a little while ago and now they're helping him uh, close his restaurant for the last few years. And after he closes, um, chef's going to help them help open a restaurant. now. Wow. So it'll be, be this whole new experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. Um, So what's currently keeping you curious? New ingredients, new ideas. Where do new you... ideas, new ingredients, new everything. Everything. Everything's always curious to me. I'm like a very curious person. <laughs> I'm still one of those like man childs where it's like, oh, what happens if we super learn this together? You yes. Know? <laughs> love it. I love and that it. goes the same for cooking, cooking yeah. with me. Like everything's always interesting. Like, what happens if you do this to that? Like, let's try it out. Do you have to carve out space um, in the kitchen to like, Hey, the menu's set, but I, I've got this chemistry set going on over here. I've, I'm I'm trying something that's new. I'm, you know, like where do you carve out that space to um, veer off of what's on the menu so you can bring something next month down the road? I don't know. I think you just do it if it's something that you want to do as a person. You know, like you just find time to do it and you just make time to do it. Have you um, have you found that? like the space between chef and business owner is that a um what's that like like are those different hats is that yeah um... they're they're completely different um i think my first year of owning a business and a chef becoming a chef owner compared to just the chef of a restaurant i mean the workload is a thousand times more it really is it's like it's nothing you can compare to just being a chef um the weight that you have, you have to always think about the bartender's feelings. How's the bartender doing today? How's the front of the house doing today? Yep. Yep. How's payroll doing? How's tax? Are we doing good with tax? Inventory. Who should we be donating to? Yeah, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of things to it. And I think the first year, I it took me a lot to really understand what that fully meant. Hmm. So if you, and, have, you, you um, had to learn to 
let go to delegate some of that or, or how have you maintained yeah. that? Yeah. Know? I think delegation was the biggest thing that took me a little bit of time to learn, uh, to be able to really trust the people around me. And I've been super fortunate, like my whole, whole career, not just from owning a restaurant, being surrounded by really good people. And, um, Right now, I have a dream team set up like at my restaurant. Everyone's super passionate. Everyone takes it more seriously than than a job, than just a job. From like from our dishwashers to our servers to our bartenders, everybody in the restaurant. So, you know, like you see that you take a day off, you come back and like you know you grab a drink at the bar and you just see that. Mm -hmm. You know, you it's not something that people can lie or try to fake. You can just like feel that from people, yeah. that energy and. You know, that's, that's, I think, something that, I don't know, I might have went off topic a little bit, but I think that's kind of No, there's the a feel, there's being, a vibe. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, you know, I create food, but at the same time, I I worked really hard on creating this environment that, you know, we can work as a team together. You know, we can work as a family together to really take care of our guests. And I think, I don't know, I, that's like the definition of the service industry to me is sometimes and sometimes i feel like a lot of restaurants forget about that basic thing yeah yeah so is your um how often does the team meet i mean is that a daily meeting you guys say hey we know these people are coming in these are repeat business yeah. these are first timers yeah. what's that look like uh every day at four o'clock everyone drops everything they're doing um we have a big set meal where we all sit together we eat together we talk together you know a little bit about like whatever we want to talk about you know, the sports, the weather, the stupid lame joke or, you know, something that whatever happens. Yeah. Um, and then we start our pre-shift at like 4.15 or so saying, hey, we have X amount of covers on the book. Um, our mater d usually starts the conversation. Um, these people have dietary restrictions. This is their, oh, this person is their third time coming back in. Last menu, they really like this. Uh, they drank this as well. So this time, um, I'm thinking of recommending the same thing. What do you guys think? And we kind of chat about it. Um, then the kitchen talks about the specials, what we have. Um, hey, we went to the farmer's market today. We got these beautiful blah, blah, blah. We're going to throw these for a moose. Or, hey, we picked up a bunch of cherries at the farmer's market because they look delicious. So everybody at the end of the meal for until we run out gets cherries on the house. You know, like just simple stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. I love it. Um I'd love to sit in that meeting one day and just see yeah. how you guys yeah. do it. I love that. Yeah, we always finish with the joke, though. Like, that's the <laughs> That's key. the rule. I think that's the key to meetings, you know? That's like, if rule. everyone's not laughing at the very, very end, there's yeah. an issue. I hear you. I agree with you on that. Um, so, I, I guess, at 27, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Be relentless. Just don't give up. Just keep doing it. Hmm. I've, I've always kind of had this thing where, you know, you, you try hard, you work hard as, as hard as you can, and you might not see it right away. You might not see it the day of, but I always have hope that it's going to come back. Like it's going to come back being something positive. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I love it. I love your spirit and your energy. Um, for our listeners that maybe are going to be in Seattle soon, um, what's the best way for them to find out about how they can come and experience uh, the fun things you guys are doing at Adana. AdanaSeattle.com. Is that the best place we can send it? Yeah, that would be, we can, you can send it to our emails. We have like a contact form on there at the very bottom of the page, or you can make reservations right on our website as well. 
awesome. And if they want to follow you online, uh, pretty good stuff happens at Chef Shoda, the handle on Instagram. Is that the best place for you? That's the best place, yeah. I'm yeah. like learning about Instagram right now. I actually like read this whole packet of like how to do Instagram properly as a chef the other day. So I'm kind of excited. I'm there like you go. with that a little bit. <laughs> Beautiful. We can't wait to see what you put up there. Um, well, awesome, man. Well, hey, on behalf of all of us, uh, stay curious. Thank you for your time and generosity and chatting with us. And uh, I sure do hope that um, sometime soon I can come up to Seattle, shake your hand and experience what you guys are doing up there. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Okay. Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Our goal at Let the Music Play podcast is to bring as much insight and inspiration to the world that we can. And by leaving a review, you will help us in doing our little part in making the world tune up to a great, big, and lovely song.